Well, hello, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to episode two of Two Ways News. And thank you so much for the many of you who wrote in and sent in emails with words of encouragement and support about our first episode. It was very encouraging. And here we are about to begin episode two with some energy in the tank. Well, I've got a little bit. Philip, how are you after the weekend? I know you were speaking over the weekend. Hardly any, actually. It's been a great weekend. I've just had of uh, speaking to a couple of hundred people and many times, and so the voice is kind of croaking and the head is here. I'm just here. This was the Lyft conference, right? The recruiting sort of full-time ministry conference that yeah, UNSW right. runs. It's a terrific conference. It's the second one I've done this month and it's been uh, one down Canberra. They're terrific time of the season, time of year to, to talk to people about their plans for the future. It's a subject I want to talk about at some stage. Maybe we'll come back to it, perhaps next week, to talk about the whole question of recruiting and of people... Uh, making the decision to enter full-time ministry and the many kind of issues that sort of swirl around that. How well are we doing in encouraging people into full-time ministry? And are there pitfalls in the way we do that and how we help people in that? It's it's a great topic. Why don't we think about it during this week and look at recording it next week, eh? Indeed. I'm also kind of just recovering my energy this week. I I saw a son married over the weekend, which was... Uh, very nice. In fact, for the, I think the first time in our personal, in our mutual history, I think you subbed in for me this weekend. I did, yes. <laughs> which yes. was uh, which was the great double booking fail, I think, of the last five years for me, that I agreed to speak at that weekend, which was the weekend of my son's wedding. I think that is a mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but back to the encouraging messages we received over the last week or so uh, from last week's episode. I just wanted to read you a couple, Philip. Good. Uh, one was from Alison in Sydney. She says, thank you so much for this timely article. That's last week's article. Uh, I'm preparing a workshop for our church women's conference this weekend. So that would have happened the weekend just passed. On truth in a postmodern world. The article was very helpful in clarifying my thoughts about the idea of words having power. That's an aspect of the postmodern problem of speaking and truth that I hadn't thought about before. So thank you for that, Alison. I hope that your weekend conference went really well. Hang and on, it, hang on. Your wife's name's Alison, isn't it? Yeah, no, this is not my wife. No, no, sure no. It's another it's another Alison from Sydney. Good. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> At least I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I know it is. Um, and the reason I, I was pleased to share that one is that in many ways, one of the main things we hope for in this podcast and newsletter is that you do exactly that. The, re- the ideas and the resources and the things that we put out each week, that they are grist for your mill as you do the ministry that you're doing, that you share them with others and that they help you in the various things that you're doing in your own ministries. The other really interesting one, Philip, was from an old friend of ours whose name was Mark, who now lives in Idaho in the US. And he said, wonderful start to the new effort. Very glad to hear Philip again after so many years. Uh, he benefited from your preaching at Matthias. He says, I wonder if in a future podcast you'll be willing to take up more of the issue mentioned by Philip at one point of the distinction between nation and church. While objectively the distinctions between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men should be easy ones, in reality, and I'm confident this is manifested in Australia, it certainly is in the US, some in the body of Christ seem to be getting this wrong at the moment. Perhaps the historical norm rather than an aberration, as illustrated by Philip's examples of the Spanish Inquisition and uh, Bunyan. And he goes on to talk about the particular problems he's seeing in the US of the confusion between Christian nation, Christian church, and some of the problems in politics they're having. Yes, they see themselves as the city on a hill. Much more so than we do here in Australia, I think. We oh, have, good reason. We started with the convicts. We're the, we're the convicts <laughs> in the jail. They're the city on the hill. <laughs> but, you know, straight out of the Bible is their view of themselves. Mm. 
it it would be something that's good to return to because I I think not getting that two, your two kingdom kind of theology right has negative consequences in both directions. I don't yeah. think we've got quite got it right here either in Australian Christianity, but for different reasons in the different ways. But uh, let's come back to that at some yep. stage. Thanks, Mark, for that. But this week, I thought it would be good to bounce off one of the issues we touched on in last week's episode. Uh, I was stewing a little bit on it in the days following about the subject of tribalism because of all the different descriptions we gave of things last week, that was the most negative word we used, I think, tribalism. It's a real swear word almost to call someone a tribalist. And so I'm going to sort of chat through the first draft of ideas that I've put together on this in the hope that you'll help me improve it. Okay. Okay, here we go. What's wrong with tribalism? In last week's edition, as I said... We touched briefly on the long conflict that there's been between these two ideas that we called, on the one hand, Enlightenment liberal humanism and postmodern progressive tribalism. And of all those labels, the one that sticks out as the real put-down is tribalism. We use that word to describe people whose identity and loyalty is so much tied up to their tribe, to their social identity, their party, their group, their race that it trumps all other loyalties and considerations. And so what matters finally is not so much what the truth is or what justice is or even who you are personally, it's what tribe you belong to and what interest that tribe has. And I was thinking, Philip, that we see this particularly in respect to political tribes. One party will loudly condemn somebody. We see this all the time. Uh, They'll condemn someone of the other party for some misdemeanour or some failing and demand that they immediately resign or beheaded or something. And then when a member of their own party does precisely the same thing the next week, well, of course, that's a very different matter. There were extenuating circumstances. It really wasn't that bad. Let's just move on. There's not much to see here. I was also thinking that we see that the downsides of tribalism in our current context in the way guilt and accountability is talked about. So as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, and I'm afraid we're both members of, of that tribe... We belong to what's really become thought of as the dominant and oppressive tribe of Western culture, uh, the tribe that's most responsible for the ills of, of our culture and our history. And so when I personally do something wrong, it's really only to be expected, and I'm deeply criticized, even excoriated for it, because it's typical of the oppression that my tribe, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, tend to perpetuate. And also you're a male. I didn't say a male white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, even worse. I even got once accused of being a fat white male. Oh, dear. I offered to go on a diet. There's only, there's only one of those adjectives you can do something about. I, know, I offered to go on a diet. I offered to go out and, and sunbake a lot more to overcome the white. But that was the limit, I said. Mm, indeed. And one of the interesting aspects of it, too, is that because if you belong to the wrong tribe or the tribe that's deemed to be the oppressive tribe, or the one that's not in favour, it changes the way your personal behaviour is evaluated. So if I personally do something wrong, I'm blamed for it, and perhaps very strongly so. But even if I don't do personally anything wrong, I am still guilty, and I am still under condemnation to some extent, because I'm complicit in the crimes of my tribe over hundreds of years. I'm guilty almost of being the wrong kind of person, of belonging to the the wrong group, as it were. And correspondingly, what I've noticed is that you can do exactly the same thing or not do the same thing and be part of a different tribe, a less 
oppressive one, one of the historically victimised or marginalised tribes, and everything is different in the way your behaviour is evaluated. And so even if nothing bad is actually done to you as a member of that more favoured tribe, you're still seen as being oppressed and victimised because you belong to that victimised tribe and you partake of its oppression and disadvantages. And so tribalism is kind of a derogatory term for us because it's easy to see how it descends into injustice, I guess, and ugliness. Tribes exercise their power as a group to advantage themselves and to hurt others. They can arbitrarily kind of prioritise themselves and their interests. And when that happens, we naturally cry out for justice. It seems it's just not right. There's no impartiality. We're not treated for what we ourselves have done, but there's just the brute fact of whether you are in the right tribe, the tribe that's in power, or the tribe that's favoured or not. So I've scribbled down those kind of ideas about initially what I think some of the issues with tribalism are. What strikes you? What's your reaction? Well, um, first up, I don't use the word tribalism with a degree of negativity that you are mentioning because I believe in tribes. I believe it's a, a tribe can be a, actually a, a good thing. I'm coming to that, it's, but go on. <laughs> it's, it's even an essential thing. Yeah. Uh, and so tribalism can have the connotations of negativity, yes. But every time the word is used doesn't mean that it has all those negative connotations. Mm. I even thought of calling this particular piece What's Wrong With Tribalism Anyway to indicate yes. that maybe it's not always wrong because I'm going to come later in the piece to say okay. there are aspects in which as Christians we, or as created people, we believe in tribes. We believe in well, keep going. Families. Let's hear what you're saying. All about. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just flip to the other side now and talk about individualism because what we tend to do as a culture is this, because we see the problems with the collective approach, the tribal approach, we can flip the other direction. Yeah. Hmm. So one understandable reaction to the excesses and injustices and at times absurdities, I think you'd say, of tribalism, is to flip to individualism. That is, I should be judged by my own character and actions, not those of my group or tribe. Because I'm more than a social identity, I'm a person with individual integrity and responsibility. In fact, the individualist would say, we need to minimise the influence of collectives and tribes and let each individual be free to make their own way and to take their own opportunities and to be responsible to receive the benefits and consequences of their own choices and actions. And it sounds sensible in some ways and right to say this, but it also doesn't take long for individualism to get ugly as well, because all the material benefits that it has bestowed on the world, and it has bestowed many, the kind of free market, capitalist, individualist kind of system that we've, we've grown with over the last several centuries, despite all of those things, it has also led to exploitation and selfishness, and it degenerates into a sort of solipsism, into I am who I am, and a kind of egoism that focuses in on me and what I have and what I've got. And so these, we have the tussle between these two tendencies, these two ideas, between the collectivising impulse, like the tribal impulse, and the individualising or the personal freedom impulse. I guess it's been in some ways classically in our culture an economic argument between, in one sense, socialism in all its forms on one side and free market capitalism on the other. But as we saw last week, I guess, Philip, it's become more recently a fight between 
a humanist freedom of individual speech and the right of the individual to their own ideas and a more progressive kind of cultural tribalism that sees the world mainly in terms of groups and identities and your membership of those groups and identities really determines your status as to whether you're part of the deserving class, the the acceptable and morally pure class, or the class of people who aren't proper and who don't have a place. It's interesting, isn't it? The American writer Ayn Rand, you see, she starts out, it, it, in a sense, it's, it's a capitalist reaction to communism of her home country when she moved across to America. But ultimately it leads to the ethics of egoism, ethical egoism, as she wanted to put it, where it's not just a matter of economics, it's a matter of any, any and every part of life. All I've got to look after is myself. I don't have to worry about society. Society will work better if everybody just looks after themselves, which, of course, didn't even work her in, own, in her own personal life, let alone in society as a whole. But, yes, it, it, it may come out of a capitalism versus socialism thing, but it's gone much wider than just the economics issues. It certainly has these days, absolutely. Mm. Well, in terms of how then we think about these things as Christians, I've got some thoughts, but you were saying tribalism isn't necessarily all wrong because the sense in which tribalism is, or being part of a group, is, a, is something that we would affirm. Well, it's an essential. No man is an island unto himself. We are created in families. We, we come into existence as a result of the relationship of two people. Um, we come, we're, we're born into families. We were created to be in families. So when God created man, he created man, male and female, to multiply and fill the earth. And so you don't exist as an individual. You exist as the outcome of family life. And as you mature into adulthood... So you create a new family life. You may leave father and mother to be joined to your spouse, but you start a new family with a spouse and with children flowing from it. So we never were individuals. We always are, in some degree, family members. And family is the kind of basis of tribalism. So as your family grows, um, so you acquire uncles, aunts, cousins, second cousins, third cousins. So you acquire this network of people um, to whom you have obligations, from whom you you receive benefits. Certain societies, urban industrial societies, break down that family connectivity more than um, the kind of rural traditionalist societies but it's still there. The tribal life is, is a good and is a kind of natural, essential part of our very existence. It's interesting. In Israel, I think there were three sorts of levels. There was your father's house. That was the particular place you most particularly belonged and was almost like the economic unit, your father. And then there was the clan and then there was the tribe. Mm. Um, and you see it when, I think, Achan was... Selected, and they go through everyone. Now all the tribes come, and all the tribes, this yes. tribe, and all the clans, and now all the uh, family. You, family. You, it's your family, and it's you. Yeah. And it's almost like there's a network and a kind of web of familial, we'd say, familial relationship, or quite literally tribal relationship in the larger sense 
that's all connected by blood and well, by fathers. The, the, the nation of Israel was a nation of 12 tribes. Hmm. That's what it was about. And there was a family solidarity towards outsiders, um, which you often see, you know, uh, brothers will fight with each other at home. But when an outsider picks a fight with either of them, they immediately become best friends and work together against the outsider. And so the tribes of Israel, by and large, fought the, as a nation. But yet they fought within themselves. Ultimately, in one sense, the nation of Israel failed because of the intertribal warfare that was taking place and that actually pulled the nation apart. It, it was there almost from the beginning, but it gets solidified when the northern ten tribes go off as Israel and the two southern tribes are Judah. And you, you wind up with such jealousy and warfare and division that the nation doesn't hold together. It's interesting you're foreshadowing where I'm, in a sense, thinking of going with this article. Um, in terms of what goes wrong with the tribal instinct, what goes wrong with what is a natural part of the created of our created life, it's where for Israel, God as their father, as the father of the nation, who is who for whom they are all his children, in a sense, they are all part of his tribe. It's their disloyalty to him in the end. It's their failure to unite around him and see him as the point of their ultimate unity that splinters them apart, as they're unfaithful to him as as their father, they become racked with hostility and rivalry with each other. Yes, well, it's interesting. John the Baptist was to do the task of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So that's not just in their family. That is turning Israel's hearts back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are the, the founding fathers of the tribe, of the nation. Let me run with this next little part of the of my yeah. critique of families and tribes and, and individualism and, and see if it lands anywhere. So as we were saying last week to some extent, we do find ourselves kind of in the middle of this great debate as Christians where affirming of the value of tribes and collectives and families and yet we also value the place of the individual. Um, that is, each person, we want to say, will be judged for their own deeds and for their own acts done in the body. Uh, the soul that sins will die for its own sins, not the sins of its fathers, as Ezekiel 18 discusses that at length. And yet at the same time, we're a bit distrustful of individualism because we know that putting me at the centre of everything is kind of almost like the definition of sin. Like mm. Individualism was almost, another, almost a word for sin, the mm. autonomy of the self and mm. of centering everything around me. And so we look at both collectivism, tribalism, and individualism. And we say, yes and no, you both have good points, you both go too far. As a friend of mine likes to say, there's very little you have to say that couldn't be improved by dividing by 10. <laughs> we are inextricably part of groups, and those networks do determine a lot of who we are and what opportunities we have politically and culturally. And yet it's not enough to say that that sums us up that historical disadvantage, for example, that's directed towards your group somehow therefore vitiates your responsibilities to take action as a person and be responsible and accountable for your own actions and so on. But I don't think it's that we just can't decide or that we're hovering between the two or that we want to have a balance of the two. 
I think we find ourselves in yet another situation where godlessness leaves us with a false choice or an unworkable choice. My thought is that without God as the one and true point of unity that binds people together and gives purpose and accountability to our groups and our identities, that all human tribes in the end disintegrate or descend into self-interest or power politics. And without God as the creator and as the judge of each person who calls us out of ourselves to love him, to love our neighbor through the gospel, then individualism also descends into an ugly self-centeredness. And so my kind of image in my mind, Philip, is that it's almost like a triangle. There's God, the creator at the apex. There's the place of the individual and then there's the place of groups and the three are connected together. But when the apex of the triangle is removed, we're left with this impossible doomed choice between two things that don't hold together. We end up either gravitating to one dysfunctional side or the other, or we hover a bit dissatisfied in the middle. But we don't have the resources or the framework to hold the two together, to have a collective tribal way of thinking that makes sense and doesn't descend into dysfunction and likewise with individualism. And it just occurred to me that we kind of see this critique in 1 Corinthians, that in the first chapters of 1 Corinthians, in the opening chapters, it's a critique in a sense of false collectivism, false tribalism, factionalism, where the person of Christ is not our point of unity, but I follow Paul and I follow Peter. And we drift into rivalry and dissension. But Paul is saying, if you grasp that the person who truly unites you together as a fellowship is Christ, the crucified Christ, then human factionalism and division is just absurd. He is the one we follow, and following him leads to love and to care and to laying down our lives for each other. And then later in the book, in chapter 14, or chapters 11 to 14 really, Paul critiques the other side. He critiques the individualism that focuses on my own gifts and my own expression and my own benefits and my own kind of status within the group and instead fails to discern that I'm part of a body. I'm part of a a body of Christ, that we're not just a bunch, I guess as we were saying, a bunch of individual, disparate, disconnected body parts where we're part of a body with a head. And it's only when the body has a head or it's only when the triangle has an apex that it all can get held together and make sense. So when through the gospel I come to know myself and everything through Christ, I can be the kind of individual who takes responsibility for my own actions, but who directs them outwards towards others for the glory of God. And I can be a member of the kind of group That determines all other groups in a sense. God's household, his group, the family or tribe that brings together all the earthly tribes and tongues in a a wonderful array of unity that transcends our differences, but does so in relationship to the God who creates us. And so I guess I'm saying what's wrong with tribalism when it's dysfunctional is ultimately the same thing that's wrong with individualism when it's dysfunctional, and it's the rejection of God. It's kind of a triangle without an apex. It's a body without a head. What do you think? Well, I like it. On your image, it's the triangle actually turns into a spectrum. Um, it's just the bottom line, isn't it? The one line. 
it's not a problem of individualism or a problem of tribalism. It's a problem of godlessness. And once you have God, then both sides can be held together by our relationship with him and by his creation of us. I mean, 1 Corinthians is interesting, but it's through the scriptures, as you know, as you'd expect. That is, when a nation goes to war, the individuals go to war. You mightn't like the war that it's going to, but you're held accountable for that war. You're part of the nation. We get caught in both being individuals and in being members of tribes at the same time. Now, if the nation and the individuals living under God, then the extremes of individualism and the extremes of tribalism are held back, or at least can be held accountable. So you see, there are times when Christians have been involved in excessive tribalism, uh, racism, uh, the apartheid time. But the beauty of having God as part of your analysis is you can call those extremes back to God. You can critique them. Whereas without God, there is no critique. There is just push and shove up and down the spectrum. Um, and there's no answer as to what's right or what's wrong with anything. It's just a question of what works or what works for me <laughs> or what works for our tribe, our family. And culturally and politically, it seems to me, here we are making these wonderfully broad sweeping statements, but it does seem to me we just flip back and forwards. So in my lifetime... The 80s were a great time when the individual impulse, and I'm thinking of Thatcher and Reagan and the whole movement of conservatism in the 80s. Greed is good. Well, it was exactly. It's easy to see its ugliness. But in another sense, it was a reaction against a collectivism that had gone wrong and dysfunctional and become moribund and, and the whole economy was, was falling apart. Because the role, the role of the individual and individual responsibility had been so neglected, it had swung so far to that end of the spectrum that it wasn't working anymore. So we swung back. And for a while, it all sort of seemed, oh, that, that was good. The economy got rolling again. And everyone said, yeah, now we've, just, now we've solved it, and except it sort of went a bit too far that way. And then it all fell into a heap in that direction. And it's like we just wobble back and forward between the extremes without any way of, of holding them together or having an integrating principle that has a, a godly individualism, a godly sense of accountability for who we are, as well as a sense of mutual responsibility and belonging. It also strikes me that in Christian debate over the last 20 or 30 years, we also tend to swing back and forth a little bit on this. The critique comes of trying of church being sorry, of Christianity being too individualistic. We've got to be more communal. We've got to prioritize the group and the, the church. But the result is often that the church becomes the path to salvation and becomes the sort of be-all and end-all of everything and the gospel and its call on the individual life gets lost. So I feel like we, we flip back and forth a little bit in Christian circles as well, do you think? Yes, but we can be called back by the Bible to a better balance on it. So, yes, I make an individual response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, but that then introduces me into the family of God. And I now have a whole new view of, of, uh, of brothers and sisters. In fact, there's that lovely little phrase there in um, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about we no longer view people as we used to view people, but we now view people as a new new creation in Christ Jesus. And so my individualism, my individual response, ushers me into a family. However, at the same time, my individual response may usher me out of my genetic family, out of my birth family, because the Lord Jesus requires us to have a loyalty to him that exceeds that of our families, which is important because so many people, their religion, their view of life, their philosophy, the way they live, has been controlled by their family background. And the one thing you mustn't do is break with the family. And so you have people living in terrible bondage, like the caste system of India, where people's whole view of life and their existence is caught up just purely from their ancestry. And so they are living in the bondage and slavery of of being one of the untouchables for no other reason than that they were born in the wrong family. And there's no way out of that. There's no freedom. But once you accept the truth of the gospel, you no longer view people in the same way as you used to view people. And our liberation from our family, or rather bringing family properly under the throne of God, is an important transformation of society as well as individuals. It's... It's through the gospel, in other words, that we're reconnected to the the person external to us and to all our tribes who makes sense of who we are and it makes sense of, of all our human relationships. Yes, it's bringing the tribe under God as well as bringing ourself under God. Yes. And it allows us to understand both. Yes. And to avoid the terrible shortcomings and dysfunctions of both. Yeah. Because you're right, when there's no external point to discipline me about what the truth is and who I really am and what the world is really like, I'll cluster into some kind of tribe that in the end will end up overwhelming that truth and lead me into evil. Yes. Well, I see it in the media today. We don't call it tribes. We, we call it bubbles. Mm. Because I have yet to work out the alternative, I subscribe to two newspapers that are diametrically opposed to each other. And it is extraordinary to read them, to glance through them each morning uh, on the web as I do. On any topic, they approach it from the opposite end and they disagree as to what topics are worth commenting on. So... Last week I saw there was a the Australian Broadcasting Commission has a media watch in which the man said that the ABC was in danger of losing its independence and therefore unbiased because it has a partnership with an organisation called ACON. The, the BBC had the same problem with a, a partnership with a with Stonewall, and so this man raised that question. One newspaper didn't refer to it. The other newspaper made a big big deal of it. And you think, well, this, this is interesting. You only read one paper, but I like reading the comments down the bottom of these essays in the newspapers because then you realise the tribe that each of these newspapers has developed, whether it's intentionally good marketing or whether it just happens, but the readers in the newspapers continually affirm 
what the articles are saying. So it's not just the articles are disagreeing with each other, the readers are disagreeing with each other. And so they have developed two media tribes. Where we listen to our own news and have our own opinions based on our own facts, just the facts that we hear because they're the only ones we hear. I mean, the classic of it was... My friend John John Chapman, who told me of his father, who was a very keen member of uh, uh, one political side. I won't say which side, because that's an irrelevance to this point. And in his retirement, he used to listen to the parliamentary debates on the on the radio, and he used to listen to his own side. And when the opposition got up to speak, he'd turn them down for the statutory amount of time, and then turn them back up again when his own side would be speaking. And John challenged him about this, and he said, well, there's no point listening to the other mob. They've never got anything worth hearing. <laughs> well, they don't if you turn them down every time. How would you sure. know if they had nothing you know? worth hearing? <laughs> that's right. But it's where it all descends to. But that's when, just honest. Yeah. I think that's what the media are doing at the moment. But Chapo's father, he did it honestly. <laughs> The other side gets turned down almost for us by the algorithm. Yes. And we choose it and reinforce it and become entrenched in our own little tribes. Without even knowing that the other tribe exists necessarily now. And developing a sense of antipathy towards the other tribe Mm. because anyone who doesn't believe and and go along with everything that I've heard and all the other people in my tribe think is true must be an idiot or immoral Mm. or both. And so you have this kind of dysfunctional dividing up of society around false identity groups, around artificial and dysfunctional ones. And that's what happens when we don't have a point of of unity whereby we understand who we truly are and what the world is really like, and that's what the gospel gives us. Yeah, and it's down at the practical level of life too. I don't know if you've ever read up any of of Robert Putman, the, the Harvard professor who's into social capital, But his research has shown that when you integrate communities, instead of increasing trust across, um, in the American context, across the different ethnic or racial backgrounds, the Hispanics or the African-Americans or the whites, instead of increasing trust between them, it decreases trust. But not only decreases trust between them, but it decreases trust between individuals in them. So in integrated communities, the whites don't trust the whites at the same level that they do in a white community, and the blacks don't trust the blacks as much as they do in a black community. Oh, that's disturbing, isn't it? It's very disturbing because the whole kind of social engineering, we've got to integrate everybody. And everything will be fine. And everything will be fine. We'll live collaboratively together. Actually, nobody lives as well. Everybody moves. Now, he says only in the short term, basically because we haven't done it long enough to know the long term, but the last 20 or so years there's been forced integrations and it's all turned out actually negatively, except, and I've got a quote here, except the one thing that is different that I thought. He said, uh, during ongoing research on the changing role of religion, my colleagues and I have attended numerous services over the last several years in churches across America. In many large evangelical congregations, the participants constituted the largest thoroughly integrated gatherings we have ever witnessed. Putman's not a Christian. He's Jewish, if I remember correctly. The point is, Christians integrate 
in the very way that the community can't integrate. And he explains it in these terms, which may or may not be the right explanation. It seems likely that this undoing of past segregation is due, at least in part, to the construction of religiously based identities that cut across conventional racial identities. And in part, I agree with him about that. That is, we in church have something more important to us than racial identities because we see people as new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I've been pondering about it in terms of of inclusiveness. Inclusiveness is a value that comes out of Christianity. I mean, nearly every church in the world has a sign out the front saying, all welcome. We're the ones who who created this sense that Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free can all be included. It's a thoroughly Christian idea. It's a thoroughly Christian idea. It's kind of like that Tom Holland book on Dominion where he sees his values and ideas come out of Christianity even though he's not a Christian. But why do we value inclusiveness? Inclusiveness in what? I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Inclusiveness in whom? Yes. It's because we're all one in Christ Jesus that we can be one and can say, you're welcome to be here um, just like me on exactly the same basis yeah. because in him we were all once yes. enemies of Christ and now we're right. all redeemed by his blood and so we're all here together as brothers and sisters all on the same basis because the gospel is what makes us one. And when you have inclusiveness without God and the gospel, what you get is inclusive by exclusion. <laughs> you have to choose a characteristic. You have to choose yes. something is the basis on which you're included, which means that if you don't have that characteristic, you're excluded. Yes. And so it's exclusive all the time. Whereas we always welcome in anybody, whether you're a believer or not, you're welcome in a church. Right? The, 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 the church is open to all, one and all, because the God who created created all. And we are not there because we are good moral people. We are there because God has created all. So there's an inclusiveness that we have had as a value which we've put into society. They've now grasped this value and applied it in the most extraordinary fashions that are really bizarre. It becomes a political tool by which to push forward other agendas. And to gain power. And to gain power. It's got nothing to do with inclusiveness because it'll very happily exclude people who won't go along with a political power game. Which is kind of where we started all this last week with Andrew Thorburn. did we? And the exclusiveness of, the exclusion of views that aren't palatable. I'm glad we've come in a circle. Yes, that is good. And I'll go back now and rework that first draft of my article and you can read that second draft by the time you're hearing this podcast at twoways.news in the published version of the newsletter version of this episode. So you can look forward to seeing what actually comes out there. Well, thanks for being here once again on Two Ways News and for being part of the conversation we're having by being able to get in touch with us and let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear what you think about tribalism, individualism, and how the gospel transcends and solves those issues. Uh, Get in touch with us. You can send an email in. Just send it to me at tonyjpayne at me.com. Love reading it, and I'll respond to... I'll respond to every email. I'll, I'll promise that at this point until it gets too vast. But at the moment, I'm, I'm responding to all of them. Uh, and if you'd like to 
get this podcast every week or get the email version every week, you can just go across to twoways.news and subscribe there to uh, the newsletter version or the podcast version. You can subscribe for free and just get it every week. There's no cost. There's no charge. If you'd like to support us in doing it, there's also a supporters club option there that you can take up and become a member of. Uh, And while I'm talking about the idea of support, I mentioned that earlier. Two Ways News is a collaboration between me and Philip and Two Ways Ministries. That's kind of where we get the name from, which is the ministry organization that supports and enables Philip's ministry of preaching and training and writing and so on and so forth. And Two Ways Ministries is having some supporters gatherings in the next little while, so that if you'd like to come and meet Philip and me and hear what Two Ways Ministries is doing more broadly in preaching and training and also in this podcast and all the other things that are happening and learn how to support that work more broadly and help it keep happening, you can come along to some of those supporters gatherings. They're being held here in Sydney and one's going to be online via Zoom for those who want to join in. The first one is this coming Monday, the 31st of October, and it's here at Moore College where we're doing this recording uh, in Sydney, in Newtown. If you're in Sydney and you'd like to come along next Monday, the 31st, you need to let us know quick smart. Apparently, we're supposed to sort of finalise numbers and catering and that sort of stuff pretty much on the day that you're going to be getting this uh, podcast uh, released. So if you'd like to come this coming Monday, please let us know quick smart. And I'll give you details of the other gatherings, which are later in November and December next week. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks once again for being with us here on Two Ways News. Thanks, Philip, for the conversation. Well, it's been great to be with you again. I love doing this. How about you close in prayer for us this week? I'd be glad to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in darkness and in sin and trapped in the domain of darkness, but that you come to us and reveal yourself to us and save us. And you save us from the folly of what happens when we reject you, whether that's the folly of of an ugly individualism or a, a dysfunctional tribalism. We thank you that you set us free to be who we were created to be through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be individuals before you and be judged and accountable before you and called by you to not be selfish, but to love others and that we can be drawn into your family and household through the gospel, to have a point of unity with other people, with every other person who knows and trusts you, and a basis for welcoming and including and loving every other person because you first loved us. We thank you so much, Father, for all that you set us free to be and to do, and we pray that as we push these ideas forward in our own lives and in our churches, that you would bless us with not only a great unity together, but a great love of others and a great urgency for preaching the gospel to them. And we pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.